are glorious words that we just sang. Why should I gain from this reward indeed? Why should we gain from the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God? Why should we? It is amazing. And indeed, we, we have gained, haven't we? We have gained forgiveness. We have gained righteousness that he has given to us, the removal of the wrath of God. We have gained life eternally. We have gained a fellowship among the believers so that each one of you is a living stone being built into a house of the living God. What glories of grace have been given to you, to us. Last week during the pastor appreciation, I felt like I, I guess I remember how much I have gained in Christ, that I don't deserve anything. <laughs> um, and so it was very moving and humbling to receive such love from you. And so I thank you deeply for, for that show of affection. And I so love you. I so love this church. I can't imagine being anywhere else in the world. I love this place. And, and I thank you. It makes shepherding um, a joy. Well, why don't we turn over to First Peter? First Peter, we have surveyed these five chapters, these five chapters that are packed with such a density of theology that it has taken us seven months and 30 sermons to unpack all of it, and there are still depths that we have not plumbed, but it has been a good journey. Peter has taken us from, from the darkest depths of human suffering to the highest glories of our union with Christ, and he has put on exhibition for all of us to enjoy the glories of the grace of God, our living hope offered to us while we live in exile in this hostile world so that we can remember where our hope is so that we can set our minds fully on the hope of the grace of God that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is ours. And so anyone that thinks theology is for academics, that it's not practical, all that that means is you haven't been touched by that theology. All that it has amounted to is knowledge, not allowed to penetrate your heart. But theology is, its literal meaning is the study of God. Theology is the study of God, and God is personal, and God has aimed his heart at your heart. And there's nothing more practical than that. A personal relationship. And Peter's heart, as we can see in this first letter of his, is electric with the theology of God, with the one that he once walked Galilee with. You know, in the very first sermon of the series, I, I read this quote from Edmund Clowney. Some may scorn the comfort and triumph of Peter's letter as unpractical theology. His answers are answers of faith. 
But Peter knows that his witness is true, that Jesus Christ is real. He has tasted that the Lord is good, and this goodness will not fail. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And that comes from our passage today. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So before we look at our passage today, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the very end, today we are going to remember this journey that, that Peter has taken us on for us these past seven months. And it's probably going to feel like we're surveying a giant landscape, because we are. And we're also going to look at the figures in this passage. Who are they? What are they? And then we're going to try to answer the question, what is the fruit that's supposed to be produced in our life from this letter? What does this amount to in us? What a lasting effect should it leave upon us? So that's where we're going. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Please follow along with me. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, as we come before your word this morning, as we consider it, I pray that it would transform us. Yes, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform our hearts by your living and abiding word that we so graciously get to consider this morning. God, use my words, keep me from error, let what is spoken be truth and life, and I pray that we would receive it with humility and eagerness. And I pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So you can see at the beginning of our passage in verse 12 that Peter mentions Silvanus, regarding him as a faithful brother. Do you know that Silvanus is a key figure in the New Testament or a, a key player? He goes by another name, and that's a name you'll probably recognize, Silas. Silas was a Jew, and evidently he was a Roman citizen, and we can infer that because he has a Roman name, Silvanus, Silas Silvanus. And that's the one that Peter is using here because he is writing from Rome. Okay, Silas first appears in Acts 15. So just a little bit about him. Uh, he is sent in Acts 15 to carry a message from the apostles in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. From the council of Jerusalem, Silvanus, Silas, is the messenger. In Antioch, there he meets up with Paul and Timothy, and he accompanies them on Paul's second missionary journey. He endures lots of sufferings with Paul and Timothy, imprisonment and beatings, and then after a bunch of travels, Silas and Paul and Timothy plant the church in Corinth. While in Corinth, Paul writes two letters to the Thessalonians. 
Both Silas and Timothy help write those epistles. And you'll see their names, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, at the beginning of First and Second Thessalonians. So eventually, Paul leaves Corinth. He heads back home, back to Antioch. But Silas stays behind, presumably, presumably to continue ministering there at the Corinthian church. But obviously, at some point, he leaves there. He links up with Peter somewhere, and they end up in Rome together. Again, Peter and Silas and others, they're in Rome during the reign of Nero. Because, and this letter, 1 Peter, that was written between 62 and 64 A.D. Now, we know Peter died under Nero's reign in 60, or we know he died under Nero's reign, and Nero died himself in 65 A.D. Okay, I say that because there's a brief window, a brief span of time between when this letter was written and when Peter died. This was only a few years before Peter was crucified upside down by the Romans. But when Peter was martyred, at that moment, Silas was likely on a tour through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is who this letter is addressed to. Very likely, and most scholars agree, that Silas is the one who carried this letter to the churches in what we call Turkey today. And Peter makes sure that those who are receiving this letter know that this man, this Silas, is a faithful brother, which implies that there's those that wouldn't be, those that are imposters, false teachers, false prophets that roam the land. Many claim to carry an apostolic message. Many claim to be apostles themselves, similar to our day. And Peter wants his beloved churches to know that Silas, he's not one of the imposters. This one is a faithful brother. You can trust him and you can trust the message that he carries. And in verse 12, we're looking, chapter 5, he says, I have written briefly to you. <laughs> that gives me a chuckle. So yes, compared to some of the other epistles, 1 Peter is shorter Man, is it dense. Haven't we seen that? There's not, there's not one extra word. Nothing is, is haphazard or superfluous. Everything has depth and meaning. And these 30 sermons, they've been a beginning. I'm telling you, I have edited so much out of so many sermons. There are mountain ranges of theology beyond these little vistas that we have shared together. And in this little short letter, Peter's fingerprints are all over it. And as we've gone through this letter, we've seen that. We've seen him referring to that night he denied Christ. We've seen him referring to those moments when Christ did things miraculously like walking on water and calming storms. We have seen Peter's fingerprints all over this letter, but how clear it is that he was carried along by the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. After laboring over this letter, there is no doubt in my mind 
that God is the ultimate author here. So it was carried by Silas, penned by Peter, inspired by God the Spirit. And we, my friends, we are the benefactors. We get to bask in all the glories that are unfolded right here for us. It's a joy to feast upon this letter, and I hope it has been for you as well. Look again at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now this verse does a tremendous job of remembering where we have been. And it also helps us to see where we are going. So we have been, as you know, in 1 Peter for seven months. We are going, starting next week, to the book of Revelation. And it is going to be interesting. (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) Where we were, the glories of the grace of God that Peter has been declaring. Peter's been exhorting and declaring this, and so we must remember that, that grace is not merely something that you think about. It is not just an idea. Grace is power. Grace flows out of God's goodness and love and wisdom, and it enters into the elect, and it transforms them, recreating them. You are a new creation in Christ. And then it moves through the elect, and transforms the world around us. For even all creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So this grace is transformative, electric power. It's not literally electric, though. So listen to Peter, what he says at the very start of his letter, in in chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are all at work to multiply grace to believers, to the elect. Grace accords with the Father's plan With the Spirit's transforming power, you receive forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ and obedience to Him. Grace is deeply, powerfully practical and deeply, powerfully Trinitarian. God gives grace in part so that we can serve one another with it. As Peter said, as as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of what? Of God's varied grace in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you are not serving one another, then you are not a good steward of the grace that God has given you, and you are not glorifying God. You have been given grace not so that you can gobble it down and grow fat upon it, but so that you can extend grace to others and serve them. God has been so generous to give you grace. He sacrificed his one and only son with the most precious blood of Christ spilled on our behalf. And now he asks you 
to live with that same sort of generosity, with the grace that he has given to you, serve. And grace is more than what is present, what is right now. It transcends our very brief lives of 80 or so years. That's an average. Grace is given to you now to fill you with peace and a righteousness that serves. And grace is set before you to fill you with joy and a living hope. A living hope that looks to the future and acts in the present. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Future grace drives today's hope. In your future, when Jesus is revealed, when you see him, Graces upon graces upon graces will be given to you. Real things. Things that you will touch. Things that you will see. Things that you will feel. Real things. Things that you did not deserve or or earn, but they are simply given to you because God has set his favor upon you. Because he chose to. Because he wants to. Because he loves you. And he will lavish you with praise and glory and honor. And remember what we studied last week. After you have suffered a little while, Peter writes, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the true grace of God. This is living hope that he has birthed us into, that he has recreated you for, to receive it. It's yours in Christ. It fills our, our very many sufferings and afflictions with purpose. If God... If God has set your life on a trajectory of glory, then aren't these present sufferings light and momentary? If God uses our lives to glorify Christ and reveal the same glory to others, does that not give your pain meaning? We do not endure in vain. Nobody here, none of your pain is meaningless. It has meaning, it has purpose, eternal purposes. According to the foreknowledge of God, our afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we long for the day, we long for the day that we will see God and He Himself will restore us, will strengthen us, will establish us, and confirm us. Stand firm in this this true grace of God, and conquer pain. When we get to the book of Revelation, we will see many of those things described there too. So we do not lose heart, 
We do not shrink back. We stand firm in these graces, as Peter says at the end of verse 12. Stand firm in this faith today, knowing that these are yours. They are yours today. Like you have been given this foreign bank account with an astronomical sum. And today you are receiving these small payments from it. good payments, but you're not able to access all that's there until you come of age. But on that day, everything within it, all that is theirs, will be yours. Access for you to enjoy. Grace is yours now, so if you have love for Jesus, that's grace. If you look at your fellow man with a measure of love, That's grace. If any righteousness flows through your hands, that's grace. If your heart beats with joy and hope for Jesus, then that's grace. And these graces will so illumine you in the future that you will shine like the sun. Your physical body would would break beneath the overwhelming flood of joy, of being in the presence of God. And so God is going to give you a spiritual body, able to stand in his presence, and you will be able to soar upon joy of heights unmeasured. And that grace is yours. It's yours today, it's your hope today, and it's yours in the future. Completely. And when you stand firm in this faith, in the true grace of God, then that roaring lion roaming around, you'll see just how defeated he is. He is a conquered foe, and you can resist him when you stand firm in the true grace of God. His lies, his accusations, which constantly barrage us, which would make us feel worthless, like God doesn't love us, like we're not truly His, like all of this stuff isn't worth it, it will mean nothing to you. Because the God of the universe has called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. He has named you His own. And now the righteous King The king of kings stands at God's right hand to advocate for you, saying, this one is mine, precious and beloved. The devil has no response to that. He is silenced. He is bound. He is defeated. Stand firm in the true grace of God and conquer. To the one who conquers, Christ says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the true grace of God. There's another implication there, right? Other things are being peddled as graces of God that are not true graces of God. I'm drawing an inference for sure from Peter's words here. But I know that 
I know from his second letter, I know from a number of the other epistles, that false teachers and false gospels were rampant in the 60s, A.D. uh, 0060. So something we'll also see in Revelation. So many lies cloaked as truth. So many people falling away. And Peter declares that what he presents, that's the true grace of God. So stand firm in that grace and conquer these lies. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, this word is the true grace of God. Peter was the first one to proclaim it to these churches in Asia Minor. Believe not in other gospels. There are no other graces than the ones that you have received through the apostolic testimony. What Peter first proclaimed, the words that are now being carried by Silas, these are the true graces of God. So if anybody proclaims a gospel where every physical ailment is healed, That is a false gospel. If there's a gospel that promises material wealth, success, that is a false gospel. If there is a gospel that is wholly focused upon social justice, that is a false gospel. If you look down on others, perhaps because they celebrate a day that you do not, Beware of the false gospel of the Judaizers that makes laws where laws ought not be. If you look down upon others because they abstain from participating in certain days, beware the false gospel of the Epicureans who would throw away all law. The true grace of God which Peter proclaimed is Christ crucified, risen, making for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a holy nation, a new nation, a new creation, a kingdom advancing. This is our gospel. Let us not fall to the lies of the devil to the temptations of Babylon. Verse 13 says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. There's almost universal agreement that the she in verse 13 is the church in Rome. Again, Peter's writing from Rome sometime between 62 and 64 A.D., She that is likewise chosen, that's the church there. And so I love this picture of the Roman church excited to greet those that are chosen in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's this kinship there, a love between them. And they've probably never met each other, these various churches. And I think we can learn from that. We can be excited to fellowship with other churches, 
whether they are near or whether they are far, so long as we stand together in the true graces of God, we can be excited to love and fellowship with other churches. And here in verse 13, as I've hinted at, Peter is referring to Rome as Babylon. It's not Babylon, the actual city that you read about in the Old Testament that's been lying in ruins for centuries at this point. And some people have said that Peter's trying to conceal his location so he doesn't want to let people know that he's really in Rome. But, but I don't think that's what's actually going on. I think Peter is communicating something that is profound and prophetic. And I'm not certain how aware Peter is of his own prophetic words here. But calling Rome Babylon communicates four massive things. Like Babylon once was, Rome is the center of global power. And that's at least in terms of the globe as they understood it. Like Babylon, Rome was filled with all kinds of moral depravity and wickedness. Both were exceedingly arrogant and they denied the truth of God for a lie. Babylon destroyed the first temple. The temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC. And here's where I'm not sure if Peter understood his prophetic words. Rome would also destroy the temple. The second temple in 70 AD. Much of Revelation, I believe, has to do with the destruction of this rebuilt temple. God judges Babylon for her wickedness and because she destroys the temple in Jerusalem. And God judges Rome for her wickedness and destruction of the temple. There are are chapters upon chapters in the Old Testament of, of oracles proclaimed against Babylon. That God is coming in judgment. And there are oracles proclaimed against Rome that God is coming in judgment. We find those. Some in the Old Testament, but many in Revelation. And God's word is proven true because both Babylon and Rome no longer exist. So calling Rome Babylon had powerful and prophetic effect for every person reading Peter's letter. They, they knew what Peter was getting at here. Every person reading it that was at least familiar with Old Testament or Jewish history So parentheses here. In Revelation, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, John also talks symbolically about Babylon, but he's not referring to Rome. There's another exceedingly wicked city that was about to be judged, and they're ultimately responsible for the destruction of the temple. So we'll go there. Let's call that a little teaser. Close that parentheses. Back to Peter's words. We find a little hint of of a dissident. Remember what Peter said earlier in, in his letter? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme, to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter's giving an apostolic command that's supposed to permeate time and location. In all places, at all times, God's will is that government punish evildoers and offer peace and praise to those who do good. God establishes governments. He puts rulers on their thrones for this purpose. 
But when government deviates from the will of God, when they begin to praise what is evil, to condemn what is good, then judgment comes. Now, in most cases, as you probably remember, government is a reflection of the people. If the people do not repent, as they did in Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, then God will judge it, like he did to Babylon, like he did to Rome. So it takes wisdom, and it takes endurance, and it is not reactionary, and it is not violent, and it is not divisive. But when human institutions of government resemble Babylon, then the elect live as exiles indeed. They do not participate in the evils of Babylon. Like Daniel, they are a people that live set apart. They are a holy nation. A people for God's own possession, not the possession of tyrants and doers of evil. And so the elect live as dissidents, meaning they refuse to call what is evil good and they refuse to call what is good evil. The elect will live not by lies and the elect will not soil themselves with the evil expulsions of a diseased society. And though the elect may face sufferings as dissidents, they do not run, but they stand firm in the true grace of God. As Peter wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. And so the church does not need to fear Babylon. Peter lived there. And he was martyred there. The church would face horrible persecutions. But it would eventually overcome the full might of Rome. And Rome would one day call itself a Christian nation or a Christian empire. Rome would. It's astounding, and I'm not saying that Rome was actually Christian, but it does reveal the tremendous impact of this little tiny church that Peter once shepherded. Amazing. A kingdom of God that advances, and the gates of hell do not prevail against it. Back in verse 13, Peter not only sends Greetings from that church in Rome, but he also sends greetings from Mark, who he calls his son. But Mark is not actually his son. Peter has discipled Mark. Mark has become his spiritual protege, much like the way Paul calls Timothy his son or his child in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. So Mark also has been a significant player in the New Testament. Do you know that? Mark, also called John Mark, first turns up in Acts 4. Peter's in prison. An angel, you know, God miraculously frees him. An angel leads him out of prison. He starts walking the streets and goes immediately to a house church. And the house that that church is meeting in is owned by the mother of this same Mark. 
Years later, Mark accompanies Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and for some reason, Mark does not choose to continue with them. It causes a rift between, a very famous rift between Paul and Barnabas. And then eventually, Mark ends up with Peter in Rome. And from Rome, Mark records Peter's account of Jesus' life. And we call that the Gospel of Mark. So Peter and Mark worked closely indeed. He was like a son to Peter. And now we come to the very last verse in 1 Peter. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. At the beginning of the sermon, I said I would, one of my purposes is to talk about the fruit that First Peter is to produce in us. So inescapably, one of the fruits of First Peter should, should be love in us for one another in the church. Love for one another in the church. Peter said we are to serve one another, and we saw that earlier. How much easier is it going to be to serve one another if we love one another? If you love one another, won't you actually want to go serve? It won't feel like obligation, but it will be out of love. Now, there's a little bit of context that we need, though, for this business about a holy kiss. Greeting a person with a kiss is a, in this time was a sign of deep affection. So it wasn't something that was practiced out of, in Jewish synagogues, so it's not coming out of Jewish tradition there. It's not a part of public life, but this type of holy kiss was reserved for family or for the closest of friends. So when you see Judas betray Jesus with a kiss, it's an incredible, it, it's a profoundly disturbing and powerful moment. That's the same type of kiss that Peter's referring to. Peter's basically saying, though, that that we in the church should love one another like we're family, like we're the closest of friends. So these people that you see in this room are to be the closest of friends with. To love each other deeply and earnestly. Like Peter wrote earlier, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We should love one another. And this should be an enduring fruit of First Peter in our lives. For we all follow the same Lord. We all walk through many sufferings. Together we are being built into a spiritual house and together we worship as a royal priesthood. Indeed, we ought to love one another earnestly. I've already spoken about two other fruits of 1 Peter, joy and hope. Joy, what a joy it is to know that God has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. What a joy to know that you are a living stone built upon the rock that is Christ. What a joy it is to be counted among the elect. And the hope the hope that lies before you, all the 
contrivances of Babylon and the devil cannot steal them away and all the sufferings of this exile cannot outweigh them. Our living hope is nothing, nothing can take it, can steal it, can snatch it. And the final fruit that First Peter should produce in us, almost the final, is peace. He opened his letter with peace. He ends his letter with peace. Grace and peace. We cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. He has shown us mercy. He fills us with grace. He ransomed us with the most precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So have peace. Have peace. If God is for you, who can be against you? So we let love and joy and hope and peace swell in our hearts. Fill our hearts. We meditate upon the promises and graces that we have found in 1 Peter and we stand firm in them. And if you do, brothers and sisters, you will be like a light in the darkness, like a living stone pulled from the rubble, like a burning brand of hope, and people will not be able to help themselves. They are going to want to know, what is this hope that you hold? Where do you get this joy and this peace? Peter said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let your heart swell with love, joy, peace, and hope. For when you do, when Jesus Christ is the Lord in which you find love, joy, hope, and peace, then you know that God has said to you, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Ultimately, the the fruit of 1 Peter in our lives is holiness. Is holiness. A holiness that blazes with hope and with love and with peace and with joy. And to everybody living in the dark and the cold, They want it. We are the light of the world. We are the temple of the living God. We are the living stones built upon the rock that is Christ. We are the royal priesthood burning with holiness. The sufferings of this brief moment cannot and will not extinguish it. Father, we praise you that you have called us, named us among your own, that we will get to enjoy these graces now and forevermore. Lord, I pray that these fruits would indeed be alive in us, that we would know joy in our salvation, that we would set our minds fully on the hope that is set before us. That the peace that surpasses understanding would overwhelm us. And that we would love one another earnestly from pure hearts. Lord, let these things be true in us. 
that we might that we might indeed be a holy nation. People that are holy because you have called us holy. It's unfathomable that you would say that about us, sinners as we are. We praise you for it. In the name of Jesus, our precious Savior, our King who reigns forever, amen.